Happy Monday, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of the Frary and Smith podcast. Today, we're continuing our Sunbelt in review series with episode four. We'll be taking a look at James Madison's first season as an FBS program. We hope that you've been able to catch the first several episodes in our Sunbelt in review series where we spoke with the Troy Messengers, Josh Boutwell, to review the Sunbelt championship season for the Troy Trojans, as well as our conversation with veteran television reporter Brandon Dunn, who analyzed the eventful season for the Coastal Carolina Chanticleers. If you missed those episodes, you can find them by clicking the link in our Twitter bio or by visiting Apple or Spotify in the coming days. You'll want to make sure you check out those episodes. Over the next several weeks, we'll be continuing to dive into each Sunbelt School's 2022 season with the help from the experts who cover them on the ground on a daily basis. Today, we'll be talking about the 8-3 and three James Madison Dukes, who had one of the best transitory seasons from FCS in college football history. It was a season that included being ranked inside the top 25 and tying for the East Division crown after a stunning 47-7 victory over Coastal Carolina to end the season. Yeah, being in Harrisonburg this year had to be an exciting event and just a historical season for this transition. And it was one of the most exciting teams in the country, a team that got ranked at one point. So it was great to talk to someone who was in the mix on the ground for this historical season and just watching some of the conference's best players week in and week out. Maybe one of the conference's best coaches now proven and how he's using his formula from the FCS, bringing it up to the FBS level and just an exciting future for this program. Hey, it was great talking with Shane Metlin, who will be our guest on this episode. I think, Caden, you and I both agree with James Madison being new to the league. This is one of the teams that we knew a little bit less about in terms of the inside details, and Shane provides that on this episode. Uh, He covers this team on a daily basis, probably some of the best coverage of a reporter in the conference. We've really enjoyed that. Uh, He'll join us on this Frarian Smith podcast episode to break down James Madison's magical season. Caden, tell our listeners a little bit more about what they'll hear from Shane on today's episode. Well, James Madison has no shortage of great players to talk about, and we definitely touched on those great players. And we also got a little bit of a pulse of how the program and how the community was feeling about them not being in that championship game, not being in that bowl game that felt very warranted. So excited to hear the people be able to hear Shane's opinions on that and just what his pulse was as the team as far as them not being able to be in the postseason play this season. Well, we're really excited to have Shane Metlin from the Daily News Record in Harrisonburg, Virginia on today. Shane, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, let's jump right in. This was a historic season for James Madison. They make the transition into FBS football this year. They end the year eight and three. Uh, Shane, they were picked sixth in the Sunbelt East preseason poll. And we wanted to ask you from your perspective, how much was that used as motivation internally throughout the season? I think probably a little bit. I think, um, you know, when you look at JMU, they probably knew they had they had 22 guys that they could play, you know, but that they could put on the field at any time. And the depth ended up being an issue for them at times where they had the three-game losing streak in the middle of the season, uh, some injuries and things kind of piled up there. You saw it. I think they're fairly confident going forward they can, you know, get better in that regard as they get, you know, more towards the 85 scholarship limit, continue to build there. But I think they felt like, you know, if you knew FCS football, you knew that those top tier teams could compete with most group of five programs, you know, on a day-to-day basis to 
the big question was going to be just, you know, do they have the depth to do it week to week? And you saw mixed results from JMU in that regard. And um, so, you know, the fact they were able to beat some good teams, I don't think was a big surprise. The fact they lost some games also, you know, kind of fits into what I think was probably probably expected. But I mean, to answer your question, yeah, I think they had enough confidence in themselves that there, there was, you know, some using that uh, sixth place pick as motivation. Shane, on September 3rd, the Dukes played their first game as an FBS program at home against Middle Tennessee. It ended up dominating MTSU in that game, and that's an MTSU team that finished as a bowl winner. Describe what that atmosphere was like in Bridgeforth Stadium that day and just how special that moment was for the institution. Yeah, it was it was a good atmosphere. It was, you know, um, pretty close to a full house there. I mean, I think they're maybe a little disappointed it wasn't completely 100% sold out, but... Uh, Traditionally, those holiday weekends they struggled a little bit with the with the ticket sales and stuff. But yeah, it was a great atmosphere. I think probably the biggest thing was uh, the student turnout was huge. Um, the student tickets were snapped up. I think within minutes of becoming available, um, which is kind of I think it shows you know what they were making the move for was to kind of continue to build um, towards having a new generation of people look at JMU differently than. Um, you know, kind of always getting those questions like, are you division one? I think, you know, they got sick of that, you know, when they were FCS, like, yes, that is division one, but it's not, you know, FBS. And, you know, they really, for a school that size, a school with that size fan base, with the facilities they had, it was time to make the move. And it started out, you know, as well as it could have started that day with a big, big blowout victory against what turned out to be a fairly solid team. Yeah, it was interesting because early on in the year, I don't think anyone knew how good Middle Tennessee State was going to be. They ended up being a very good team, uh, and so I really think it highlighted how big of a game that was for James Madison. Uh, Shane, prior to week six, after just five weeks as an FBS program, this James Madison team entered the top 25 in the rankings. What was the excitement level like around the program and university when that news broke? I mean, it was huge. Um, you know, I think everybody kind of realized, you know, you're getting ranked, you're five and oh, maybe you're not necessarily truly a top 25 team, but this is a big moment as far as, you know, just, hey, when they run that scroll across the bottom of ESPN with the top 25 teams, James Madison is going to be on there. People are going to see James Madison. Some people for the first time are going to like kind of realize that James Madison made the move up. They're playing in the FBS, they're playing in the Sun Belt. Um, that might have been the first time a lot of casual fans even were aware of what conference realignment brought for JMU. So that was a huge moment. I think, you know, just the fan base, you know, kind of feeling validated for making the move. A lot of them, you know, kind of just there, there was a segment of the JMU population that didn't think this was ever going to happen. They turned down opportunities before they spent, you know, close to a decade building up facilities and budgets and things so they could have this kind of success when they did make the move. Um, and I think, yeah, seeing number 25, James Madison, kind of just validated everything for a lot of people involved in the decision. 
Coastal Carolina comes to town for the final weekend of the regular season to JMU. They were ranked inside the top 25, although they were without star quarterback. Grayson McCall for that game. The Dukes end up winning 47-7, to kind of dubbed themselves the king of the East after the game. Do you expect to see any East champion banners in that stadium? We have some guys in the past kind of self-proclaim themselves as, as those people who aren't eligible, quite eligible for those spots, kind of throwing themselves, kind of put the crown on their own heads. Yeah, I don't know exactly what they'll do as far as um, putting something up in the stadium. Uh, you know, they've in the past they've you know been pretty careful about how they worded some of their stuff when uh, with things. You know, the Kings of the East they can't say East champions. I don't know if they'll do something maybe like says first place finishes division, like you know start start that kind of banner or something because um, you know. Like I said, they've been careful about how they word things. When it was fairly clear they weren't long for the CAA and they're putting up some new facilities and things, suddenly all the banners would say conference championships instead of CAA championships in a variety of sports. So, so that they can get clever and creative with how they do it. I don't know um, what it'll say in Bridgeport Stadium, but I think they want to do something to kind of recognize that they did finish first regardless of you know what the postseason status was yeah I think they're gonna have to do something because this was clearly a historic season I didn't have this on my initial questions but I wanted to just ask this question obviously there was an article that you put out a couple weeks ago kind of detailing the transition and not being able to play in postseason bowls being able to play for that conference championship Obviously, James Madison knew going into the season that those that those were not possibilities. But why do you feel like this fan base was so frustrated at the end of the year about not getting that opportunity? I mean, I think one when um, when you make this transition, you for, for one thing, you know, you talk about the fan base. The fan base is going to get riled up about a lot of things. You, you know, so Sun Belt fans are going to learn that about JMU fans that uh, you know they. They're pretty active on social media. They're pretty active at things, and they will quickly defend uh, their school. But, um, you know, I think part of it is, to some degree, it's following the lead of their coach, Kurt Signetti. He's a guy who's, you know, going to, you know, poke the bear a little bit. You know, sometimes he, he knows the deal. He knows the deal, but he also knows that people talking about his program is a good thing. And um, I think there's certain segment of JMU fans, especially on social media, that feel the same way that, you know, we'll keep the discussion, we'll keep JMU in the discussion, even if we know how this is going to end up. Um, and that's, you know, good for the program in the long run. Um, it, it was frustrating, I think, to have that kind of success and know you're not going to play in the postseason, especially coming off the previous school year. Us Outside of football, every other team was banned from the CAA postseason. So there's a little bit of frustration of that just to kind of see that continue in some ways, even though it wasn't a case of animosity between JMU and the Sun Belt that uh, caused this. But, you know, looking at, you know, some people kind of feel like the rules are antiquated. Um, You know, I think there's probably a a good segment of JMU fans that hope even going forward that another, another school moves up to the FBS. Maybe they don't have to go through this. Um, and they're also trying to continue to speed up the transition process. And I think they feel like they'll probably be bowl eligible next year, uh, provided they win the six games. Now, Shane, would you be an advocate for that rule changing, or do you think it should be done more on a case by case basis? Obviously you mentioned 
when you look at this JMU program, they were very well positioned to make this leap, but maybe some other FCS programs aren't. Would you be an advocate to see that rule changed? Yeah, I mean, I think you got to look at how you're doing it because, you know, there's, there's definitely reasons to, um, to kind of, I don't want to say discourage, but make sure that teams that are programs that want to move up to, if you're talking about Division two to Division one in basketball or FCS to FBS in football, to make sure that these teams, programs are actually prepared, that they've like gone through this, that they're not going to want to be bouncing back and forth, which we've seen before. Um, you know, in, in Idaho, for example, it didn't really work out with them at the FBS level. Um, I think you want to make sure that those programs are prepared. I'm not sure if the postseason ban really gets that job done anymore because, you know, like I said, we're seeing programs that, you know, have never drawn five-figure attendance. We're seeing programs that don't have the same kind of budget still decide to make that move up and, you know, hope it works out for the best. Um, you know, maybe there's other ways to do it. Maybe you have to prove that you've, you know, made these milestones over the past three to five years or whatever. But then once you're up, you're up and you can enjoy all the benefits. Um, you know, I, I, I am all for there being something, you know, some sort of gate to cross and a gatekeeper. But I'm not sure if saying you're not eligible for bowl games for two years is really getting the job done in that case. Yeah, I think that's really well worded, and it will be interesting to see if the NCAA steps up. Before we get into some offseason talk, I wanted to ask, it was obviously just a special season to cover this team this year as they made this transition. What stands out to you most about this team and what they were able to accomplish? Um, you know, I think, you know, they were able to bounce back from the uh, three-game losing streak. You know, obviously, um, you know, something that's, you know, stood out really since Kurt Signetti got to Harrisonburg has been the way they've developed and improved their quarterbacks. You know, Todd Santeo, um, he, he struggled at times at Colorado State. I think people probably expected he was going to be a serviceable quarterback for JMU. I don't know anybody's expected, you know, offensive player of the year type production from him. Uh, but if you go back and look at what Kurt Signetti has done with other quarterbacks, he came to JMU his first year. Um, Ben DiNucci wound up getting drafted by the Cowboys, had the same kind of very, very similar jump in numbers and production from the year before not playing for Kurt Signetti to his first season with Kurt Signetti as Todd Santeo. A guy like Cole Johnson the year before was, you know, probably the best quarterback in FCS football. Um, is a guy who came in as a walk-on originally and uh, made a huge jump from year one as a starter to year two as a starter. So um, I think that's maybe one of the most impressive things is that they continue to develop those quarterbacks. And now they've got two more transfer guys who will battle for a starting job next year. And if, if that trend continues, they should be very competitive in the Sunbelt East again next year. It's a perfect transition for us, Shane, to talk about Todd Centeno. He had one of truly the best great quarterback seasons we've seen in the league in the Sunbelt since I've been in it and covering and watching it. He ended up winning Sunbelt Offensive Player of the Year. Like you said, he's responsible for 32 total touchdowns this season. What will stand out and what will you remember most years from now about the season that Todd Santeo had? You know, I think uh, really just his ability to make throws. Uh, he made some passes that, you know, even I, you know, I mentioned a Cole Johnson who had a really good year at the FCS level the year before. Todd Santeo made some passes, you know, between two defenders, things that, you know, we didn't see a guy like Cole who was really accurate 
um, a re- really yeah, prolific passer. Even that said, uh, Todd Santeo made some plays that, you know, a guy like Cole Johnson just couldn't make, also did it with his feet. Um, you know, his, his, you know, mentality, his, uh, able to kind of bounce back from, you know, some setbacks in his career. This is third school. Um, things didn't really work out at Temple, a coaching change there. You know, things that really worked out at Colorado State, a coaching change there. Um, he winds up at JMU and finds the right situation and, um, he definitely embraced uh, the opportunity that was available to him. And, you know, really just you go back to the spring game and the improvement he had made from the spring game to really when he settled in in the second quarter against Middle Tennessee State in that opening, it was like you had seen a different quarterback. But really, you know, his first quarter maybe was a little bit shaky, but he kind of settled in, felt like he was part of that system, you know, by the second quarter of that first game. And it was like, wow, this guy really fits. This guy's going to be pretty good here. Yeah. I mean, just an excellent season for Todd Santeo and kind of following up on that last question. We've been told that Todd was a little banged up for that Georgia Southern game. He missed the Marshall game in late October and then didn't look fully healthy against Louisville. How injured was he during that month long stretch, Shane? I mean, I think fairly injured. I think it, um, it, it, it compounded. He hurt his shoulder at Appalachian State and was playing through that. Um, you know, I feel like they, they downplayed how much it affected him at Georgia Southern, but I feel like it had to be, you know, a little bit of a factor um, in that game. And then he began to sort of overcompensate for injured shoulder. And that's when, you know, the body movement of overcompensating kind of it wound up uh, hurting his oblique muscle uh, there in the core. And, you know, that kind of ca- compounded things. And then he just couldn't go against Marshall. And then, uh, like you said, obviously he was not his uh, 100% self at, at Louisville. They didn't even, you know, really kind of try to run the same kind of packages. They really, it was kind of clear after Louisville got up by a couple scores, they were just trying to get out of that game and get back to Harrisonburg with him in one piece. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if he would say he was even 100% then the next week or two, but, I think by the end of the season, he was feeling pretty good. And you know, now uh, now trying to get 100% healthy, I think, to try to extend his career in the pros at some, at some level, someplace. This JMU team's not only going to have to replace the production, but the leadership of guys like Chris Thornton, like a Percy A.J. Obese, who played their final snaps of their career for JMU this season. Both of them have some great stories and have been great parts of this program's success. Where do you rank those two amongst some of the all-time Dukes? Uh, I mean, that's <laughs> that gets tough when you start talking about the all times. Um, you know, numbers wise, though, they both are you know clearly up there at their positions. Um, you know, to to have multiple thousand yard receiving seasons, I don't think anybody else has done that at JMU. For Chris Thornton, you know, a guy who when you just look at him, um, not highly recruited, he starts out at VMI, um, really kind of proves himself there, and you know kind of just climbs the ladder as it worked out for him going from, you know, an FCS program to a premier FCS program that winds up being in a really good group of five league and proven he could get it done regardless of where he was. Um, I think, you know, that story and along with the numbers and everything that really puts him up there with Jamie's all time wide receivers. Um, You know, Percy, it's a similar type of thing. He dealt with some injuries. He came back, um, he came back this season to play sixth year, like just, you know, really 
with that goal of someday playing in the NFL in mind. And, you know, by the, by about the middle of the season, I'm not sure there was anybody who was running harder, making as much after contact as Percy was in, in, in the entire Sunbelt. I mean, he was really, you know, making some impressive plays and they had a deep running back room. And I think by the, the fact that by the second half of the season, they were really kind of just making him the, the premier back when they had some other options. I think that kind of goes to show the trust that the coaching staff had in a guy like that. And, you know, where to rank him among JMU's all-time running backs, it's tough. But, I mean, he's definitely going to be a name that gets mentioned when you start talking about their top ball carriers that have come through here. Now, Shane, we can't, you know, let you go from this episode without talking about James Madison's defense. They had one of the best run-stopping defenses in the country this year. It felt like every week that that defensive unit, they just kept putting up video game-esque numbers. Why was that unit so successful at stopping the run against some really good opponents this year? Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about stopping the run, I think that really started on the interior with the defensive line. Um, you know, you got James Carpenter, uh, you know, we talked about how, you know, Chris Thornton's path to being, you know, an all-conference type player at the FBS level, uh, you know, you know, James Carpenter was a guy who Signetti saw him at a camp for Elon when he was in high school, came in as kind of an undersized offensive lineman in camp, and he just liked how much he got after it, that he eventually invited him to be a walk-on at JMU. Um, he eventually earned a scholarship. He moved to the defensive side of the ball. He played, you know, that nose guard position and just really, you know, really was exceptional there this year. Um, you know, a guy like Jamari Edwards also came in and was good on the inside and they got, they got a great pass rush. I mean, the way we, you know, we're all aware of the way college stats are accumulated that the sack numbers also, you know, end up kind of skewing the rushing numbers a little bit. And, you know, they had great pass rush all year. Isaac, Isaac Kulu, um, was great again this year. Um, yeah, it was really just a variety of guys, the depth on the defensive line, I think. Um, the speed there made a huge difference. Uh, that, that's really where it kind of started when you're talking about the running numbers, I think. Yeah, the defensive line was definitely special all season, and so was Kurt Signetti this season. I think back to his media day and some of the comments he made talking about not it's a matter of when, but not if, or sorry, matter of when, but not if James Madison will run the Sun Belt. How much fun has it been covering Kurt and seeing him since his arrival in Harrisonburg really growing and blossoming as a coach? Yeah, I mean, He's a guy who he this is the position he wanted to be in as you know a coach a head coach at this kind of program taking on these kinds of challenges. You, you go back and kind of look at his career arc. He was you know one of those guys who was always considered you know a top tier uh, assistant at the you know Power Five level. We were talking about NC State, um, Pitt, and then he goes to Alabama. He's working for um, Nick Saban, recruiting coordinator, working in different position groups. And he really could have been set for life there. You know, we know how Alabama assistants are paid. He was, you know, a highly valued guy there. He took a huge pay cut to go back to um, IUP, the Division II school in Pennsylvania, where his father was a legendary coach. Took a huge pay cut to go there because he's wanted that head coaching opportunity and then kind of started working his way back up again to the head coaching ranks, D2 to FCS to Elon to JMU, 
and then made that transition to JMU. So this is kind of, you know, exactly where he wanted to be um, and took a little bit of a different route to get there. So I think he's, he's embraced it. He's, you know, always kind of had a little bit of a brash personality. He'll say, say what he's thinking and, um, you know, he might clash with other teams and other coaches at times. And, you know, I think we saw that a little bit with him, him, him and Jamie Chadwell this year, to be honest, a, a little bit of a clash there. Um, but, you know, he's going to be a fun, I think, for everybody who covers this league, he's going to be a fun guy because he's going to provide you some content and some things to talk about as, uh, as JMU sticks around this conference for a little while. Yeah, I will have to echo that. At times this year, I've kind of called him my spirit animal because I enjoy that brashness that he brings where he is willing to just say things. I think of back when the the college football playoff change gets announced and he says, you know, we're planning on being in it. Like he just says it how it is. And I think that's fun for the league. And obviously, I think it continues to elevate the platform of JMU's program. Uh, you know, we talked about Todd Santeo a little bit earlier. His career is now over. We've already seen James Madison pick up some commitments through the transfer portal. Wake Forest is Ben Griffiths and, you know, Arizona quarterback Jordan McLeod. What do you expect the quarterback battle heading into next season to look like? I mean, I would have given like a little bit of a uh, edge to Jordan McLeod. I, I still would, but, you know, Ben Griffiths is a guy who I think will come in and definitely be competing for that job uh, in the spring. It's going to be definitely an interesting season, both in uh, early to to start, you know, preparing and competing for that. Uh, they bring back two guys who backed up uh, Todd Santeo, Billy Atkins. Um, people were pretty high on him, I think, going into the season as you know going to be a solid option as that number two guy, and he really just didn't produce when he got the opportunity. And by the end of the season, the true freshman uh, Alonzo Burnett was really the number two guy who um, you know, he didn't get any really significant steps in that role, but uh, he he ended up being you know the guy who was on the field to. Uh, to take a knee and stuff um, for that last game. He, he's a talented guy. I think I would guess future outlook for the position is if I was going to take a guess right now, I would say Jordan McLeod probably ends up with the job next year, a guy with two years eligibility left. And then they've got two guys in Griffiths and Barnett with four years eligibility. If they can keep, you know, one or both of them in the program, we know how the portal works. They can keep one of both of those guys around to kind of develop to be your long-term solution. Um, I would guess that kind of ends up how it be, ends up playing out this spring. Staying looking ahead to next season, but talking just not exactly about the quarterback position, who's your favorite freshman or young player that you expect to make the biggest impact on the season next year outside of that quarterback spot? I might go with, um, you know, two cornerbacks. Um, you know, Chauncey Logan and Brent Austin, both true freshmen who came in and played right away. Uh, they obviously had their moments of struggles um, th- this year um, where, you know, you're true freshmen, you're kind of put out there on the island, their team's going after you. But for the most part, they both performed and were uh, serviceable in that role uh, where they ended up, you know, lacking some depth. Uh, Brent Austin, you know, you keep kind of going back to it, guys who were overlooked in the recruiting and, you know, he, he's a guy whose only other offer, offer was from, I think, Cal Poly. Uh, and, you know, Jamie brought him in, and he was starting day one. He dealt with some injuries, didn't really play much in the second half of the season. But those two guys uh, getting thrown to the fire right away, I think, will eventually end up being stars, uh, just you know, with the experience they're already gaining. 
I would tend to believe too. I know he's been around the program for a couple of years, but like a Kalen Black probably has a is a great opportunity next year to become a, a pretty critical piece of this offense too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that's a good, definitely a good point. Um, a guy who, um, you know, didn't get as many touches as they were really kind of leaning on Percy late in the year, but made the most of it when he did uh, get the ball in his hands, uh, especially in some big games this year. Well, Shane, we saw James Madison's list of opponents for next season announced uh, the other day. Uh, the Dukes are going to play seven bowl-eligible teams. If you had a crystal ball, how do you foresee next year going for James Madison? Uh, <laughs> I mean, the crystal ball. I, if they get uh, the kind of quarterback play they have gotten the last several years from JMU, I mean, it's always a little bit of a roll of the dice when you're bringing in a new player. Um, but, you know, if you can kind of base – what Jordan McLeod did when he was healthy and getting the opportunity at South Florida and what Signetti and his staff have done with the quarterbacks. If you can kind of expect something, I don't know if you can, you know, just go out and say, Hey, we expect this guy to be conference player of the year, like we did last year. But if you can get, you know, good production from the quarterback, I think they're going to be in the mix for the East again. I think eight, nine, you know, maybe even 10 wins is, is doable when you look at that schedule, but it's, it's a challenging schedule. Um, I think, you know, we'll get an idea right away when they go play at Virginia to start the season. And, you know, honestly, I wouldn't be shocked. You look at what, uh, that's about an hour from Harrisonburg. It's even closer drive for some of the JMU's fans that come from places like Richmond, Northern Virginia for games each weekend. I wouldn't be surprised if a big JMU crowd in Virginia Scott Stadium um, they can kind of set the tone early, I think, if they can get a Power 5 victory, even against a program that struggled a little bit in Virginia. Um, so, yeah, I think they can set the tone early and uh, kind of set themselves up for a, a successful season, even though that's going to be certainly the most daunting schedule this program's ever faced. Well, we will certainly see. Shane, we've really appreciated your time today. I know Caden and I have really enjoyed uh, your coverage of the team as well as just interacting with the James Madison fans in this uh, first season at the FBS level. So certainly appreciate your time today and wish you the best of luck moving forward. All right. Thank you, guys. It was a lot of fun talking with Shane Metlin of the Daily News Record. Caden, he brought a lot of great insight. I loved his thoughts on Kurt Signetti and what he's been able to do with this program. It was particularly interesting to hear some of the background of him bringing in quarterbacks that maybe were diamonds in the rough, overlooked a little bit during their career, and getting the most out of them, much like we saw him do with Todd Santeo this season. It's very interesting when you look at these teams heading into next season. There's many teams that have to replace a lot of talent, and James Madison is one of those teams just because of how high of a level they performed at, specifically at the quarterback position. But when you hear Kurt Signetti talk with his confidence about his team and this program, and they did what they did in their first season, you can't help but also have confidence that they'll be able to fill those spots, fill that quarterback position, and fill those important key roles like he did at the FCS level and has now proven he could do at the FBS level. So I think no one's really going to be itching to count on James Madison this year, despite what they lost, just because the confidence of their coach and his track record and what he's already proven in this conference. Okay, and I have gone on record multiple times on this podcast talking about my love affair with Kurt Signetti and his <laughs> brashness as a head coach. And you and I were talking, you know, after we recorded this episode with Shane about how we need more of that in this Sun Belt. This is a league that wants to gain more national attention, and Kurt Signetti is certainly doing his parts with comments like, hey, it's not a matter of 
if it's a matter of when we're going to run the Sun Belt or, hey, go ahead and reserve James Madison's spot in the 12-team college football playoff. I love that confidence or confidence uh, from a head coach, and I'm sure his players do as well. Yeah, no, we talked about it. And thankfully, I've had three different head coaches that don't have to out any of them. But there are coaches that might say, hey, we're going to talk nice in the media. We're going to do what we can to be respectful for this team. When we're in the locker room, we already know how we're coming and how we look at this team and how our goals are to beat this team. But Kurt's going to stand on the front line and let it. He's going to call it how he sees it. He has confidence in his team. He's going to let people know that he has confidence in his program. So as a player, it definitely gives you a boost. It gives you a different swagger when you walk on the field, knowing that you have a coach that believes in you and is willing to go out there and have as much confidence and maybe even more more confidence than you have in yourself and your own team. Okay, and I think the biggest thing I'm interested to see as we move into the offseason is who's going to step into those leadership roles for this James Madison team. We talked about the departures of Chris Thornton, Percy Ajay, Obisay, Todd Santeo. Those are all guys that were the leaders on this team. They're all gone next year, and it's going to be interesting to see who fills that leadership vacuum as we look ahead to 2023. Yeah, production is one thing. You're always going to look at who can produce the production of a Tots and Tail, which is very big shoes to fill. Don't get me wrong, but I think the leadership is one of those aspects that's not talked about enough when you do lose a big senior class. You look at a season that Troy had, they kept a lot of those seniors and they had a lot of that leadership and that led to their championship success. So I think when you look at a James Madison, they're going to have some people have to step up into those roles and it's going to be very interesting to see who steps in those roles because likely those are also going to be the people who are probably making plays for them on Saturdays as well. It was definitely one of the most surprising seasons in the league this year. If you covered the league, James Madison finishing eight and three. I don't know how much of a, of a surprise it was to those up in Harrisonburg. It felt like from the start, they felt like this team was ready to play some really competitive football at the FBS level. Well, Caden, as we've done on all of our Sunbelt in review episodes, we have handed out some end of the year awards. We're going to hand out a team MVP, an offensive and defensive MVP as well as a freshman MVP as we wrap up the season. And Kane, I'll go ahead and go first here. Uh, I had to stretch the definition of a freshman MVP a little bit for this episode. This James Madison team was one of those teams that didn't play a lot of freshmen this year. So I found a guy, Caden, that still had the term freshman in his eligibility, his classification, and that's redshirt freshman Kalen Black. He's going to be a player that's going to be asked to step up big time next year with guys like Ajay Obisay. Uh, moving on from the program, he ran for 333 rushing yards, three touchdowns this year, and also was really good out of the backfield catching the football. 17 catches, 177 yards, and two touchdowns. Kalen Black is my freshman MVP for the James Madison Dukes. Yeah, and I think he's not only well-warranted as the freshman MVP, but I think he's going to be more of a, a newcomer, someone who a lot of guys have eyes on next season as he steps in to that starting running back role. But flipping sides of the ball and going to the defensive side of the ball, my defensive MVP is Taurus Jones, their linebacker, their leading tackler, had 82 tackles on the season, 10.5 TFLs, forced five turnovers, was always around the ball while there was interceptions, forced fumbles, getting on top of the ball. He was on top of it this year for James Madison's defense. And you look at that front seven and their run-stopping abilities, they have a ton of Great defensive linemen and great linebackers up front, like a James Cardfordur, like a Isaac Aku, who did great things for this team in the run stopping. But I think when you look at where it starts and ends, it does start with that Mike middle linebacker position, getting those guys lined up, getting them set up for success, playing in play out, and also being around the ball and doing what you can. So I got to give a shout out to him for having a great season. That's Tars Jones, the, off, the defensive MVP. And switching to the offensive side of the ball, have to go with a friend of the podcast and someone who is just one of the most prolific receivers in the conference this year. And Chris Thornton, one of the best JMU receivers of all time. Now, when you look at his resume, one of two guys with a thousand yards this season at the wide receiver spot with a thousand 
15 yards and seven touchdowns, had about five or six close to or very much near 100-yard games this season, was just a big weapon for this team. And look, Todd Santeo had plenty of weapons this year, but I think the his ability to hit Chris Thorne up consistently really opened things up for other receivers in this offense. His stats back it up, and I think his other receivers in the receiving core would agree on that as well. Caden, uh, let me throw a curveball here at you because I think I want to also add an honorable mention offensive MVP because this was a really tough decision between Chris Thornton and Persia J. Obisay, two guys that have been the leaders on these teams. I think very similar stats. They both meant a ton to this team, but we were only able to pick one, but I did want to give a shout out to Persia J. Obisay uh, for his outstanding season and career as a James Madison Duke. Kane, we'll move on to the team MVP, and it's none other than the Sunbelt Conference Offensive Player of the Year. Todd Sinteo transfers in from Colorado State in his one year at James Madison. He proceeded to set the Sunbelt on fire, nearly 2,700 yards through the air, 63% completion percentage, 32 total touchdowns, including seven of them on the ground. And you look at all those stats and you say, those are a little low, but then you remember he was injured or didn't play in a couple of games this season. Todd Santeo was clearly the best quarterback in the Sun Belt this year at times this year and very deserving of the team MVP honor here. Yeah, and if you don't agree that Todd might have been not been the best quarterback in the league, you have to at least admit that he was the most versatile and the biggest weapon, I think, on the offensive side of the ball that we saw in the league this year. I think as far as throwing the ball, he's second to none as far as what other quarterbacks were able to do this year. But then when you add his element of running into the game on third downs, coming up big for his team around the goal line, I think he just has a different dynamic that not every quarterback in this conference is moving with. And I think like a Grayson McCall, you saw what this team looked like without him. And I think that's another great reason why you gave Percy Ajay Obishay a shout out because he played great in those games when Todd Santeo wasn't there really took a lot of the offensive workload despite them not being able to win this, those games without Todd but he was big for this team and so was of course Todd Santeo. Well it was an exciting season in Harrisonburg Virginia for the James Madison Dukes as they made their transition from the FCS to the FBS we're all still anxiously awaiting if they're going to get that waiver to be able to play uh, for the conference championship as well as in a bowl game next year, but it is widely expected to happen. So certainly excited to have James Madison in that championship conversation next year and in the years ahead. Well, that will do it for another great episode of the Frarian Smith podcast. Again, we'd like to say a special thank you to Daily News record reporter Shane Metlin for joining us and providing such great insight about the Dukes uh, in today's conversation. Before you go, don't forget that we'll be back with the next episode in our Sunbelt in review series. It's going to be on Wednesday where we'll highlight the record-breaking 2022 season for the South Alabama Jaguars, a team that, Caden, you were on from the start. Special guest Craig Stevenson, who covers South Alabama for Alabama.com, will stop by to give an inside perspective into this year's team. Again, thanks for taking time to listen today. If you like what you heard on this episode of the Freire and Smith podcast, make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you never miss another episode. And if you'd be so kind to us, leave us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. We love hearing what y'all think about the show. Finally, take a moment, if you haven't already, to follow the show on Twitter at at Smith for all the latest Sunbelt news and notes throughout the offseason. Well, that's goodbye for now. We'll talk to you again soon.